0: You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the ASPE podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. This week, Dr. Marcus Hellier speaks to Palmer Lucky, founder of Oculus VR and Andrew Industries, and Shane Arnott, Andrew's chief engineer. They discuss defense industry, improving defense procurement, and bringing Silicon Valley development speeds to defense industries. Hello, everyone. I'm here with two very interesting guests. The first is Palmer Luckey, known to perhaps many of you who play video games as the inventor of the Oculus Rift virtual reality system, which he sold for the small sum of two billion dollars to Facebook. But now he is the founder of Angel, a company that is bringing Silicon Valley innovation techniques to the world of defense contracting, and also Shane Arnott, who may be known to some of you as the father of the loyal wingman, now known as the Ghost Bat. So very distinguished Australian engineer who is now the chief engineer of Anduril. And they're in Australia. Shane is based here, but Palmer is visiting. Uh, basically trying to drum up bright young Australians to work for Angeral on its extra large UUV project. So we're gonna talk a little bit about Angular in general and innovation in general and then we'll talk a little bit about this specific project. So we'll we'll start with Palmer. A lot of people are, you know, are trying to grapple with the question of how do you get defense innovation and defense acquisition to go faster? And they've suggested, well, let's bring in those smart people from Silicon Valley and that'll make it go faster. And you are one of those smart people from <laughs> Silicon Valley. So how, how have you managed to make it go faster?
1: Well, the main way that we managed to make it go faster is by spending our own money on deciding what to build and how to build it and then selling it to the government once we have working technology. If you rely on the government for all of your research and development funds and to go through the process of writing a white paper, doing a research and development, building prototypes, you'll spend years building things that in the private sector you'd be able to build in a few months. And so that's really the most important thing that we've done the other thing that we do is because we use our own money to decide what to build we're incentivized to move very quickly you know and i, I don't i don't want to compare this too much but compare this with most major defense companies that are working on a cost plus contracting uh, schedule They often make more money when a program goes longer. They make more money when something gets delayed. And they're incentivized to architect very complex, very expensive systems from the start because that's how they are going to get the most uh, profit out of it. And we have the exact opposite incentives. Because we are using our own money to develop it, we want to figure out the cheapest system that can get the job done, the most elegant solution to the problem overall, and the fastest path to getting it into actual real world situations. That is really similar to the motivations of almost every company in the private sector. The business model I've described is not really unique. So if anyone listening is thinking that sounds like just a normal company, Mm. you're absolutely right. That's the whole point. Uh, It's really defense and residential construction are the only places that have the bizarre cost plus contract structure that you see in the defense industry. Uh So there's actually nothing natural
0: about the current defense acquisition system. It's kind of a bizarre, unnatural system.
1: Well, it's, it's, it's a little bit bizarre, and it's, I think, largely left over, especially in the United States, over how we modeled our procurement process in World War II. I mean, we had this problem where you had all this huge amount of manufacturing capacity in the United States. I think, for example, like a Ford automotive plant. And the government wanted them to pivot to making tanks. Ford said reasonably, well, we don't even know what it's going to cost for us to make a tank. We have no idea. We're not in the tank business. Uh, we we couldn't quote it for you. We couldn't agree to do this in a way where we know we're going to turn a profit or even be able to pay our employees. And so the government said, look, we're going to do a cost plus contract with you. Whatever it costs, we'll pay you. And then a fixed percentage of profit on top, five, six, seven, eight percent. And that was a good idea when you're talking about taking over the entire industrial base of a country in the middle of total war where nobody would dream of moving slower than breakneck pace and where everyone agreed we had to move very, very quickly. The mistake we made was continuing that contract structure for another 70 plus years, including through peacetime, where people did not have that same motivation, that those same incentives. And uh, so looking back, I understand why they did it. We didn't want to be communist and you know, uh, centrally plan everything and have the government run all of our industry. Uh, but we also, uh, unfortunately, stuck with this cost plus contracting structure that still plagues us to this day. But defense industry might
0: say, well, what if we put our own money in and and nobody buys it? But I guess your response is, well, build something good. And you you've actually <laughs> have some... S- serious successes well, in I putting mean, your own money in and selling products. So well, do you want to sort of describe some of the things you've you've had success with?
1: I mean, yeah, there will always be things that private companies probably can't speculatively build. And this argument makes sense, but my company is never going to build an aircraft carrier and then hope that the government buys it. It's, it's too large of an investment. Uh, but most defense procurement is not that. Most defense procurement is not aircraft carriers, submarines, uh, and things of that nature. It's much smaller systems. So whether it's software or or missiles or or, or even small arms, uh, those things are very much within the capacity of a private company to develop efficiently. Now, uh, things that we make, we make a lot of air, land, and sea systems. We've made we make robotic submarines. We make counter drone systems that drop knock drones out of the sky. We make long endurance uh, imaging, surveillance, reconnaissance, and strike vehicles that are able to fly in the air. Uh, they're capable of vertical takeoff and landing. And we also build a lot of software. Our core product is really uh, an artificial intelligence program called Lattice that fuses not only our hardware systems together, but also many systems made by other companies into a single view of the world uh, that can filter out everything that you don't care about, deliver the information that people do care about to the right people at the right time, and allow every system to act as a sensor that's feeding every weapon system. And uh, that, that's kind of our real core product that powers every single one of our hardware systems. Uh, and it's the reason we've been able to move so quickly on new hardware systems.
0: Now, a lot of people and countries are saying, how do we help Ukraine? You actually are helping Ukraine.
1: Can you talk a little bit about what engagement you've had there? So we've had hardware, software, and people in Ukraine since the very beginning of the conflict, just a few weeks after it started. And I I can't talk all about all of the details for, for, for obvious reasons. But you know, I, I actually started engaging with President Zelensky long before the conflict in Ukraine started. Right after he was elected, he actually called us up. Uh, he had read an article about us in Wired magazine about the border security work we were doing in the United States. And he wanted to buy our artificial intelligence powered surveillance towers for the eastern Ukraine mm-hmm. border so that he could see when Russians were building up along the border. Uh, there were regular incursions into Ukraine. They couldn't prove when they were happening or or, or where they were happening, and they wanted to really be able to prove that this was going on. Uh, and actually, the biggest problems we ran into were not with Ukraine. Zelensky gets a lot of points with me. Uh, maybe unsurprisingly, you know, he's a world leader who immediately thought my thing was the right solution to the problem. <laughs> I happen to agree with him, so we, we get along well. Uh, well but he, he has a lot of
0: fans. So I have to say, he's, he, one of them.
1: I, I would say I was an OG fan. I, I'm a Zelensky hipster. I liked him before it was cool. <laughs> now everybody likes him. Uh, But the biggest problem we actually ran into was that the United States export process was so slow. They weren't even necessarily against the idea. It's just there was no urgency. Mm -hmm. And Zelensky believed there was urgency. Mm -hmm. He knew that the Russians were planning to make a move. Uh, But the U.S. process for exporting these technologies is so slow. Like not to change the subject, but that's one of the reasons that we're building the extra large autonomous undersea vehicle here for the Australian Navy is not just for Australia, but also for export to other nations because the United States, I love America, I love the United States, we are not fast at approving export of new defense items. We're so used to it moving slow that we can't move fast. And I think Australia can move much more quickly. And so I'm hoping that next time a situation like the Ukraine situation comes along, I'm not going to be sitting here like I am today saying, geez, I, I really probably could have, if not stopped it, at least really changed the dynamics of that whole conflict. If only we had been able to export to the people who needed it at the right time. On that, one of your
0: frustrations is with other U.S. tech companies that don't want to get involved in the de- the defense market. Why? Why is that?
1: So this is a this is a long one, and I'll, and I'll try. So I'll try to keep it short. Uh, there, first, before I tell you the real reason, I have to tell you the the, the public, popular narrative. The popular narrative is tech companies don't want to work with military because they're anti-military or because they're anti-defense because they don't want to work with the government. That is only true of a small number of people in the technology industry. But the executives at those companies have lifted those people up and pretended that that reason is the reason they don't work with the military. They, they, they go to the press and say, oh, we don't work with the military because our employees have ethical concerns. But let's look at the facts. When Google employees sign an open letter to saying that they didn't want Google to work with any on any military programs less than 1% of the company signed that that petition. I don't know if that means 99% of the company wants them to work on the military, but at least 99% doesn't really care or wants them to. And I bet it's a lot more people who want them to than don't. The real reason that these companies don't want to work with the military is because it would upset the Chinese Communist Party. And these companies are hugely indebted to and in mesh with the Chinese Communist Party. Apple's one of the best examples. They are the biggest company in the world that is not a state-owned oil enterprise. They don't really count. They're the biggest private company, you know, private, you know, <laughs> private enterprise in the world, worth over $2 trillion. 95% of their manufacturing is in China. They have more employees outside the United States than inside of it. They have just recently announced that they, well, not announced, it got leaked, that they agreed to invest $275 billion into further Chinese manufacturing capability. If China were to decide that they don't want Apple to exist anymore, they could sign one piece of paper, and that would be it. It would be wiped out. And so they can't work with the United States military. They can't sell anything to the U.S. or any ally that they don't also sell to China. And it's the same thing for so many other tech companies, big tech companies, little tech companies that also want Chinese uh, access to Chinese venture capital and uh, Chinese government investment, access to Chinese markets as well. You know, uh, a lot of these companies make a lot of money selling into China, to Chinese consumers. And so this is the real reason that tech companies don't want to work with the United States military. And and it's very frightening because there's never been a point in the history of the United States where our most innovative technology companies have refused to work with the military. Imagine if during the run-up to World War II, if Ford or General Electric or Westinghouse had said, oh, you know, I'm not sure we want to work with the U.S. military because we think the Imperial Japanese are an incredible revenue opportunity for us. Mm. Uh, Or imagine during the Cold War, if you had had uh, similar companies saying, "Well, we don't really want to take a side in this axis versus allies. You we know, we're really gonna we're really gonna just uh, stick to we're really just gonna stick to uh, being a neutral party that sells the same thing to everyone." The situation that we're in today is actually even worse because at least back then they could have changed their minds once the conflict started and started manufacturing things for the U.S. Unfortunately, we shipped all of our manufacturing off to China. Uh, we did it, Australia did it, Europe did it, and so if we ended up in a worst case scenario, whether it's a hot war or a proxy war with China uh, that cuts us off from their manufacturing, we can't even make anything. It, we, we've, we to, we've screwed ourselves, and so we're in a very dangerous situation. And that's one of the reasons I started Androol is because I wanted to basically steal people away from these tech companies that are doing things that are economically valuable, but strategically useless and put them to work on things that are strategically important. Mm.
0: Well, so that gets us to the next point. So the project here is to essentially reestablish defense manufacturing in democracies like the US and Australia and to attract workforce, bright young Australians who are willing to engage in those Project. So the the first step for Andrew is the extra large UUV, uncrewed underwater vessel. Uh, The the government recently signed a US $100 million contract to kick that off. So Shane, can you tell us a little bit bit about what that project is about?
2: Right. So the, the program that we've got is three years to build three vehicles and plus a bunch of different payloads as well. Um, All the missions are classified, so don't ask me any questions about that. But the whole idea is to um, start providing a a denial um, capability back against the Chinese, the same capabilities they've been doing in the opposite, denying access for the West into the region. Um, But being able to create these capabilities at an affordability point that we can build them on mass in effect so to really have the chinese think twice about what they're doing if we can make these school bus sized Mm -hmm. vessels that are affordable enough that we can pack with all sorts of surprises and have them parked all around the the pacific Mm -hmm. um that's going to help rebalance things if you will so uh, the need is definitely now, uh, the Navy's leaning right into this. So uh, we've got some great visionaries we're working for, Rear Admiral Quinn, um, who's uh, Head of Navy Capabilities, really pushed on this, and also Defence Science and Technology as well. So uh, Professor Hilda and uh, Tanya Munro, um, there's been a real shift in DST under Tanya in particular to be much more aligned with helping grow industry as well. Um, so we've got this great combination, if you will, of you know a, a great program with the Navy, um, DST riding shotgun with us, and plus our approach of trying to do things differently and quicker. So it's it's kind of exciting.
0: In the four and a half years I've been at ASPI watching the autonomous systems space, defence really seems to have come around. Like it has changed really dramatically from a, a kind of scepticism about whether it'll ever work to a much more engaged, optimistic kind of view. And I, I guess one of the things we're seeing from Andrew is it's not in the far future that we can actually
2: have real systems delivering real effects. Yeah, the, the technology's here. Now, I think things have changed. Um, so when I was working the Wingman program, it wasn't as enthusiastic, uh, let's say. So when we, we pitched the idea... Initially, you know, it was a young group captain by the name of Robert Chipman, Mm -hmm. uh, who I uh, briefed it to now, Chief of Air Force, of course. And he was very supportive, but the Air Force leadership at the time was not. Uh, You know, the kind of feedback was Australia does not create these original equipment Mm -hmm. programs. You know, we buy it. Mm. From somewhere else, but um, Chipper, to his credit, gave us a lot of support, and we had a very determined Defence Minister at the time. who was very passionate about Australian industry. Christopher Pine um, kind of helped get it started, and since then, what's been great is there's this fervour here in Australia, and it's kind of nice to have played a role in that. You know, we're building rocket ships with the Gilmore guys. You know, the the XL program. We've got hypersonics activities, satellites, the whole lot. So. There seems to be this mojo back here in Australia, which is part of you know when I sold this concept to to Palmer and the the leadership that you know one of the big things that uh, Valley and tech companies value is speed, and I believe we've got an opportunity to go faster here than anywhere else uh, in kind of realizing this uh, this capability. So. It's kind of the right right set of circumstance and then if we can kind of do things very similar to what Andrew did in the US where we can attract people from the tech sector as well as crusty old guys from aerospace and defence as well but also getting people out of the Googles and the Canvas and the Atlassians. I guess that's the,
0: the issue is that everybody in defence industry in Australia is Constantly complaining
2: about the lack of STEM workforce and where are we going to find yeah, it? Yeah, we from need to. We need to tap into. Where, where are you going to get it from? Yeah, that, that's the whole idea. So we're going to try and tap a new source by having a very different environment. You know, we've got a founder who wears Hawaiian shirts and, and flip-flops.
0: Can, can and I just point out to our listeners, <laughs> it, it is, yes, technically a Hawaiian shirt, but it does have kookaburras on it. So it's Hawaiian with a very Australian flavor. Yeah,
2: and it's it's not your typical crusty uh, defense environment where, you know, you got to go in your shirt and all that type of stuff. We
1: empower to engineers to move quickly. What we're There's a lot of people that we hire from private industry, uh, but there's also a lot of people we hire from uh, defense contractors who want to work on things that benefit their country. They want to work on defense products, but they've been trapped in these companies where everything is so slow moving and crusty and it's impossible to get anything done. And we say, hey, you come here. We're going to trust you with authority and funds and you will be able to move quickly and actually get stuff out the door. And that's how you get people from the defense industry excited. And then from the from the tech company side, you say, hey, We have a cool office. We pay you well. We have we we're not that different from the tech company you're at, except that the work you're going to do is going to matter. Uh, You know, you're not working on advertising optimization or slightly better search engine results you're not making the you know the 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 mustache camera filter 0.1% better than it was last week work that just is going to be forgotten and irrelevant in in no time uh, and that's a really powerful message so i think especially for younger people to say don't throw your life away working on something that you're not going to be proud of when you can do something that's going to make a real difference, not just for your country, but for, uh, you know, Western democracies around the world. And they get stuck in people's brains mm-hmm. and they, they really want to help.
2: Yeah, I think that, that's one of the things a lot of people ask me what's different from, you know, previous uh, employment. And, you know, in, in all other of the primes, they have these special organizations and they do innovation the innovation only happens in those special mm-hmm. organisations which breeds a, an interesting dynamic then with mm-hmm. the rest of the company we're like well, what are they up to and why are they spending so much money and whereas that's the big difference at angel it's expected everywhere like everyone's expected to innovate across all the programs and it's it's just a totally different environment you know it's to sell ideas and have them consumed by other people to go let's go do this is just part of the culture as opposed to With Wingman, it it took a lot of PowerPoint charts and a lot of briefings um, to get that approved. Uh, This Excel project, and conceived the idea with Chris Bros, who's the Chief Strategy Officer, myself, uh, the guys from Dive Technologies, so Bill Lebo, Tim Raymond, et cetera, there was zero PowerPoint charts. I think there was three meetings. This is what we're going to do, a lot of intensive writing on whiteboards, and, you know, the leadership said, go for it. Mm-hmm. And then we spoke to Navy in some short period that they went, yeah, this is a good idea. So it's just a totally different environment. So for, you know, folks that are out here listening to this podcast, you know, come, come to Andrew. Like we, this is the environment. If you've been frustrated in a crusty environment or you're working in tech industry that you don't think the mission is, you know, as meaningful as it could be, we've got a place for you.
0: So if you attract these bright young Australians who want to help defend Australia, you talk about getting capability out the door quickly. When can they expect to see their uncrewed underwater vessels swimming around defending
2: Australia? Soon. No, we're we're expecting to go. We've got a very aggressive schedule. I'm not going to hang my hat on anything just yet. But, uh, yeah, three vehicles in three years. We're going to go fairly quickly. We've got a base level design. You know already so right now we're we're working with australian industry partners we're hiring out the team we're getting facilities stood up all that type of thing so you know we'll we'll have a conversation not too distant future about uh, our first vehicle in the water
0: Awesome. Well, you guys have made your pitch to the, the bright young Australians uh, and uh, hopefully it goes well for you. I mean, I think it's in everybody's interest that you succeed and that we get these important capabilities into service as soon as possible. So, That's the plan. So good luck. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's all we have time for this week on Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back with another episode soon. Thanks for listening.